0: have been the creative partner for worship at the local church and you are listening to the Sunday Sermon podcast featuring the messages from our Sunday liturgy. The local church is a bold and inclusive faith community based in Chatham County, North Carolina. We gather for worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in person at Woods Charter School in Chapel Hill, North Carolina and online via Facebook Live and YouTube. No matter where you find yourself physically, spiritually or emotionally, you belong at the local church and we're so glad you're here.
1: Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. You are the salt of the earth,
2: but if salt has lost
1: its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. Our second reading is from Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of God for all of God's creation. Thanks be to God.
2: You and I are reaching out over all our fear and all our doubt, number signs and family lines, and I will have your hand in mine over. Reach across the city street from north and south until they beat. In the story that we found ourselves in, what have we found ourselves in?
3: One of the best days of my life uh, could have been could have been Friday, September 21st, 2007. I was a junior, James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and on that day, which happened to be the International Day of Peace, Archbishop Desmond Tutu was on campus, set to give a speech at the JMU Convocation Center. I remember the buzz on campus. My professors were talking about it in class. It was a big deal, and it could have been one of the best days of my life, but it wasn't because I didn't go. I had only a passing awareness of Archbishop Tutu at the time. I didn't have anybody to go with. You can make an excuse for anything, so I just stayed home. And if you were to ask me today what one of my biggest regrets in life are, this one might be. At the top of the list. It was only two years later, though, that I found myself sharing some space again with Archbishop Tutu, sort of. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the lawn of Scott Stadium for a U2 concert. A friend had invited Natalie and me, and I had only a marginal knowledge of this band at the time as well. Um, And toward the end of the evening, U2 had just finished playing Walk On. You know, Walk On? And the entire stadium went dark, but then just moments later, the giant 360-degree screen that wrapped around the stage lit up, and I was met again by Archbishop Desmond Tutu, offering a prelude for the song, One. This would kick off the encore. My life would be turned on end that night. Not only would this band become the soundtrack and soul for my life, But this man, Archbishop Desmond Mpilo Tutu, would change everything for me. On the screen, as the the band began to play the opening of One Underneath, Desmond Tutu shared a message of resolve and resurrection, of promise and possibility, of beauty and fervent, steadfast hope. It was the first time that I'd heard a message that brought together faith and justice, and it's no hyperbole to say that it enlarged my heart and broke open my imagination for what it means, what it could mean to follow Jesus. That it's not just about right belief, but also about right action. And it helped me see that God can show up in the most surprising places and move in such mysterious ways. That night would prove pivotal. It's one of the best days of my life. Today, we continue a series on the saints that we're calling In Good Company. A lot of of tension there, building the anticipation. In Good Company. It's a a series about uh, finding our people and remembering that we're not alone and about finding our place in a bigger story But first, if this is a series on saints, we have to ask the question, what do we mean by saint? Because different traditions have different definitions of saint. We touched on this a bit last week when we kicked off the series with St. Hildegard of Bingen, and you named some incredible saints in our midst, St. Jude, the patron saint of lost causes, St. Anthony, the patron saint of lost things, St. Francis, the patron saint of animals and creation. In our United Methodist tradition, we think of saints a little differently than our Catholic siblings. We don't canonize. There's no formal process for naming saints. Instead, for us, a saint is anyone from whom we can learn a little bit more about what it means to follow Jesus. These can certainly include those who've been venerated in the Catholic tradition, like St. Anthony and St. Jude and St. Francis and St. Hildegard. But for us, it's also more expansive. I shared last week one of my favorite definitions of a saint from a mentor and a friend who said that like a stained glass window, a saint is anyone whose life reflects the light of Jesus in beautiful and vibrant and colorful ways for all of creation. Like a stained glass window. For us, us, a saint is anyone who has struggled with many of the same things that we struggle with, wrestled with many of the same things that we wrestle with, whose ordinary lives contain extraordinary courage and boldness, and faithfulness, vision, those who help us see Jesus a little more clearly. And so over these next few weeks, we're going to share the stories of some of these saints. And we hope that each week you might find your story, that we might find our story, caught up a little bit more in a larger story, and discover anew that you are, that we are in good company. Before we get into that, I want to again welcome you, echoing Leah. My name is Brent. I have the great joy of serving as the pastor here at the local church. So good to be with you. So good to see you. We hope for three things every time we gather. Many of you could probably say this with me by now, but we want you to feel affirmed and anchored and empowered. We say it every week because we mean it every week, and we have such terrible memories, but affirmed in your beloved humanity, anchored in the good news that we share together each week and empowered to take that good news, to live out our mission, which is God's mission, God's dream, to love where you are, affirmed, anchored, and empowered. And, and we give God thanks that you have carved out an hour-ish of your time this week and what we hope is the most important part of your week. Affirmed, anchored, and empowered. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey or on no journey at all, we say this every week as well, that uh, you have a place here at the local church. Uh, you are more than welcome. You belong. Um, and we thank God for each and every one of you. You're participating online this morning. That goes for you too. We're glad that you are here as well. As we begin, let's just be quiet for a moment. God, again and again and again, you give us saints. Like Desmond Mpilo Tutu, from whom we learn more about who you are, who we are, and who you are calling us to be. Make it so again this day, O oh God, by your grace. Amen. To be honest, uh, this week I uh, you want you want your pastor to be honest with you, right? Uh, to be honest. Um, Struggled all week trying to figure out how to begin uh, this. Uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu is, for me, uh, as I hope has become clear, will become clear, my patron saint, hands down. And not only because he too stood five foot four, as many giants do, but also because of all that he's taught me about what it means to follow Jesus. I thought about beginning with his childhood, how it was so fraught with illness. Born in 1931 in a black township in South Africa, just 75 miles from Johannesburg, he battled tuberculosis as a teenager and polio as an infant, surviving them both. The polio, though, nearly took his life, but he survived. And so his parents, Zizi and Aletta gave him the middle name Impilo, which means life. I could share more about his parents, especially his mom from whom he inherited his compassion, his grit, his heart, because in so many ways, to know her is to know him. I could begin with the story and impact of one of his first interactions with the man who would become his his mentor, uh, a tall, white Anglican priest named Trevor Huddleston. Tutu was walking with his mom and passed by Huddleston, and Huddleston doffed his hat acknowledging their humanity as they passed by. And Tutu would go on to say, you could have knocked me down with a feather. It was almost mind-boggling, he said, that a white man could doff his hat to my mother, a black woman, really a non-entity in South Africa, he would say. Do I begin with the accolades and the awards, his many honorary degrees and the Nobel Peace Prize that he won in 1984? Or maybe with how the former president of South Africa, P.W. Botta, called Desmond Tutu public enemy number one. But instead, I start here. Here in apartheid South Africa. Apartheid, remember, is essentially state-sanctioned racism. Apartheid literally means separateness. It was adopted in South Africa in 1948 when South Africa's national party rose to power in a whites-only election. Funny how that happens. Fearful that their minority rule would be threatened and afraid of the increasing population of blacks in cities across the country, they enacted these apartheid laws and sanctions that separated white Afrikaners from blacks. Many Afrikaners, in fact, used theology to justify these racist laws, claiming them to be God-ordained, appealing to the natural created order of things. It's just how it's designed, they would say. As a result, among other consequences, black South Africans were no longer free to live in cities and were instead banished to small, infertile areas. Different education programs were implemented based on race that offered substandard education to black black South Africans as a way to limit their potential and to control what they learned. And over the decades, tensions continued to mount with white Afrikaners resorting to violence to squelch protests and potential uprisings. One such massacre took place in the town of Sharpsville, where police shot and killed nearly 70 black protesters that day. We begin here, here in the late 1960s, against this backdrop at a university in South Africa where Desmond Tutu is serving as a chaplain. Students are upset, understandably, about the inferior education they're receiving and the poor quality of the instructors, and when they go to the head of the university to air their grievances, they're met with steely indignation and patronization. And so in response, the students, they form a peaceful protest, a sit-down strike where they demonstrate for several days... And then one morning, as they protested, the loudspeaker blares across campus, telling all of the students who are protesting that they have been expelled from the school and need to pack up their things and leave by 2 o'clock. But they don't. And as they remain, a swarm of armored cars filled with police and guns and dogs hop out quickly surrounding the students. The guns are pointed at the students. The dogs are lunging at them, attacking, injuring some of them. The stakes are high. The tension is thick. No one knows what's going to happen next. And that's when Desmond Tutu races across campus with a handful of other chaplains in his clergy gear. The police try to stop him from entering the protest, but he shoves his way through and joins the students on the lawn. And what does he do when he gets there? He kneels down to pray, to bless the students, and to pray with them. Peter Story, former Methodist bishop in South Africa, prison chaplain of Nelson Mandela, dear friend of Tutu, tells a similar story about how he and Tutu once found themselves in a similar precarious situation, staring down the barrels of guns in the hands of soldiers. And that's when Tutu stops and looks at his watch and says, oh, it's time to pray. And so they did. In both instances, rather than inciting or escalating, he stops to pray. In both instances, he offers peace. Peter's story would go on to say, recounting this incident, that it's difficult to shoot someone who's just prayed for you. And I begin here because it demonstrates something foundational, fundamental about Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Something that was, that was missing in much of the coverage of his death last December, the day after Christmas, when he died at age 90. While many memorials and obituaries and blog posts and, and, uh, and, and other coverage, remembering his life, celebrated his accomplishments, his tireless work for liberation, his legacy of peacemaking, all true. Few made mention or did so only in passing of how integral his faith was in all of it. He was a follower of Jesus first. His story, as ours does, is rooted in baptism. We begin here because this is where he begins. Desmond Tutu's abiding faith in God, his knowledge of Jesus as revealed in Scripture, his attentiveness to the Holy Spirit made everything else possible. I know I've told this story here, but it bears repeating. Bono asked uh, Desmond Tutu once uh, if it was hard for him to find the time for such prayer and meditation with all the work that he was leading, to which Tutu immediately responded, shot him a look, y'all, and then immediately responded, how do you think we could do any of this work without prayer and meditation? In fact, by one account, Desmond Tutu spent seven hours each day in prayer. So what does this foundation make possible? Three things that we're going to touch on. Anchored in his faith and knowledge of Jesus, he led the work of forgiveness and reconciliation to help South Africa heal. He believed fervently that each and every person is made in the imago dei, made for goodness in the image of God, inviting then the work of an enlargening heart. And three, he pointed relentlessly to hope, even in the most hopeless situations. That's all we have time for, those three things. But if you're up for coffee at some point, I could fill another few hours with material. But first, forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's get into that. Perhaps, uh, perhaps Desmond is remembering that God gives us the ministry of reconciliation, recalling Jesus' exhortation to forgive. Archbishop Tutu led the work of forgiveness and reconciliation in South Africa in the wake of apartheid, believing that there was indeed no future without it, no future without forgiveness. Once apartheid was dismantled in 1994, the nation had all sorts of questions about how to move forward, how to heal. There were two competing sides, essentially. The first one was was retributive justice. They wanted an eye for an eye. They wanted to make the perpetrators pay and go through the legal system. And on the other side were those who wanted to simply forgive and forget so that we can move on and keep going. But each side was fraught with its own issues, problematic in its own way. On the one hand, there were questions about who would stand trial and who would be the jury, questions about its fairness, especially considering that most of the judges at the time were white. But the amnesty option wasn't much better. To forgive and forget failed to honor the past and left it open to happening again. Tutu would say, Quote, unless we look the beast in the eye, we find it has an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. So instead, they found a third way, implementing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And in this process, amnesty would be granted, but only if the perpetrators were honest about the atrocities they'd committed. And it had to happen face-to-face in the same room with the victims or with their family. In this third way, there was honesty and accountability and grace and forgiveness. All of it, all of it is required for reconciliation. And these stories, while difficult to hear, paved the way for something new to emerge in South Africa. It honored the pain of the victims. It honored their shared humanity and allowed for accountability with grace to the perpetrators so that all could move forward. Tutu would often say, when you don't forgive, you feel it in your tum-tum. When you don't forgive, you feel it in your tum-tum. And what he meant there is that there's something uh, that a lack of forgiveness does to us. It eats away at us, corrupts us. It doesn't mean that we condone the action, but it instead opens us up to new possibilities, to seek justice, realignment, not, not through revenge but through transformation. Tutu gave this example from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about how this work brought about healing. He said, we had a young man, a black young man, who had been blinded by police action in his township, and he came to tell his story. And when he finished, one of the TRC panel asked him, hey, how do you feel? And a broad smile broke over his face, and he was still blind, but he said, you have given me back my eyes. You have given me back my eyes. Number two, what I find incredible is that again and again, all throughout the struggle for liberation and the work of healing and reconciliation, Desmond Tutu refused to dehumanize the other. He refused to see anyone as less than human. His faith grounded this work too because he knew deep in his bones and believed it that each and every person was made in the image of God. And so to him, To demean any person would be to demean their maker. To demean any person would be to demean their maker. He'd say this. When you treat any human being as if they were less than a child of God, you are not just doing wrong, you are being sacrilegious. You are desecrating something that is holy. You are like someone who spits in the face of God. This resolute belief that each and every person was made in the image of God, the imago dei, is what led him to champion the cause of the poor and the oppressed. It's what led him to proclaim with Jesus the blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These words and his innate understanding of the inherent worth of each person stirred him to put his faith into action. Marching in protests, carted away to prison, staring down the barrels of firearms, standing face to face, toe to toe with political leaders soldiers, and putting his own body on the line time and time again, all for the sake of justice and freedom, and because he knew that each and every person is made in the image of God. This was also the catalyst for an ever-evolving faith and an ever-enlargening heart, His struggle against apartheid and its dehumanizing effects led him to be an early supporter of LGBTQ plus persons, pitting his own affirming beliefs against those of his denomination in the Anglican church. He'd argue that just as apartheid worked to convince a child of God that they were less than a child of God, the same was true of homophobia. He said once, I refuse to worship a homophobic God. In all kinds of situations, In all kinds of places, from Palestine to Myanmar to the United States, Desmond Tutu was keen to offer this litmus test. Are these children of God being treated as Jesus would treat them? Number three. We have to talk about his work of instilling and inspiring hope. His seven hours each day in prayer gave grounding to this hope. It helped shape it helped shape it, deeply rooted in scripture and faith. He wouldn't call himself an optimist. He called himself instead a prisoner of hope. Because it wasn't always easy. In the throes of apartheid, each week he found himself eulogizing at funeral after funeral after funeral for black South Africans who had been killed by white Afrikaners. He broke down regularly in tears during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as stories were shared of atrocities committed. He escaped death himself time and time again, including once when the president of South Africa, who you saw on the screen, P.W. Balta, ordered the bombing of the headquarters of the South African Council of Churches in Johannesburg. I heard him say once, God, we know you're in charge, but it sure would be nice for you to make it slightly more obvious. in the face of so much heartache and bloodshed and violence and death, how could there possibly be hope? This is why he called himself a prisoner of hope. He couldn't escape it. He couldn't escape the story because he knew the story of the gospel. He knew Jesus, he'd internalized scripture. He knew that sin and evil and death wouldn't have the final say. He put his faith in resurrection and believed with his whole heart that God was in the business of making all things new. And so when Tutu got the chance to speak with those propping up apartheid, he'd cajole cajole them by saying, don't wait, come join the, the winning side before it's too late, he would say. And when they called his Christianity into question, he'd cheekily say, well, if you didn't want us to fight the good fight for justice and freedom, then you shouldn't have given us the Bible. And when the crowds would gather to mourn their dead, weeping and wailing, echoing the psalmist's cry of how long, O Lord, Desmond Tutu would raise his Bible in the air and thunder, my friends, do not despair, do not lose hope. I have read the end of the book and we win. It was pointing to the vision in Revelation, our future hope, our promised reality, that there will come a day with no more mourning or crying or pain when all things, all things are made new. When asked how he wanted to be remembered when he died, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, I hope they say he loved He laughed, he forgave, he was forgiven. So my friends, if you have ever felt small, wondered if you could make a difference in this world, if you've ever longed for, hoped for, worked for a better world, if you've ever experienced injustice that lit a fire in your soul or maybe your tum-tum, If you've ever experienced moments of joy in the midst of unspeakable horror, if you've been in need of forgiveness or longed for reconciliation with another, if you've ever felt less than human, yearning for your existence to be affirmed, your sacred worth to be acknowledged, if you've ever tried so hard to hold on to hope in the pit of despair, if you've ever believed that what we do here on Sundays must have an impact in the world, to anchor our witness and bring about healing and justice and liberation for all of God's children, then hear the good news. By God's grace, with Archbishop Desmond Mpilo Tutu, you are in good company. Thanks be to God. it's Leah
0: again. If you love what you hear, share this episode or send it to someone who could use a little good news this week. We'd also love for you to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about the local church, visit thelocalchurchpbo.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at localchurchpbo. Until next time, love where you are.